Hello and welcome to Softcat's Explain It podcast series. We are into episode 7 of season 5, with this being the final episode of our security trilogy, and it's a cracker. This will be the third episode released in one month as we attempt to increase our episode count faster than inflation, although that's proving very difficult as those numbers are simply ridiculous. My name clearly isn't Dean Gardner, it's Adam Luca, Softcat's Chief Technologist for Security, and we're here to explain it. Every episode, our team of experts are here to talk tech in simple and jargon-free language. Over the course of this series, we'll be discussing new trends and ideas as well as solutions to everyday problems in this fascinating and ever-changing world of tech. So, the key is in the title, and on that note, I will introduce today's topic. We need threat intelligence. Wouldn't you agree, Mr. Bond? Today, I will attempt to play M as we delve into the murky and troubling world of cybersecurity espionage, whereby the need for threat intelligence is as critical to business survival as funding rounds and bank credit. To share insights and answers to some probing questions, let me introduce our very own James Bond, Oliver Fairbank from Orpheus, and Softcat's very own Q, Alex Lewis, the gadget guru of Softcat's cyber services business. Thank you for joining me today. And on to the first question, which I'll direct to Ollie. What does threat intelligence mean? Threat intelligence, put simply, is the result of a process and it's actionable uh, information on uh, potential cyber uh, threats um, to an organization. So it could be concerning particular actors, so adversaries, threat actors that may wish to target an organization. It may be about new trends in the threat landscape. But the core principle is that it's the result of a process that is going to help make your organization more secure. So it sounds like it's kind of giving customers and organizations a, a heads up mechanism for what is happening out there, I guess, kind of raising the sites. Is that a, is that a fair way of summarizing it? Yeah, I think that's a fair summary. I think you can threat intelligence now and, and as the field is evolving, there's so many different applications. So I think the kind of use case you've referred to there is more a, um, a an almost a more strategic type of cyber threat intelligence. So used for situational awareness, this could be Um, You know, we've seen a new attack technique being deployed in a different geography or in a different sector um, to your industry, but it may be relevant still for situational awareness. It may be of note if you're um, considering what controls to deploy in, in the future, that sort of thing. On the other side, it could be a lot more operational. It could be about threat intelligence regarding this is a campaign that is targeting, um, you know, one of your closest competitors in your jurisdiction or it's targeting a technology um, that you use. So it's something um, that is more operational and you need to be immediately aware of and able to take action against. So you, by the sounds of it, like you've, you've got different types of threat intelligence and they serve different purposes for customers. Fundamentally, they have kind of different benefit statements. What would a customer think about if they were choosing a type of threat intelligence? What, what would you be trying to think about to understand whether threat intelligence is something you need for, for your business or your organization? I would say even before going into particular, you know, uh, types or levels of threat intelligence, so talking about strategic, uh, tactical, operational, I would start by, as an organization, trying to define what we call your own intelligence requirements. Uh, and probably an easier way to think of this is as the exam question. So 
it's a set of questions about what I need to know. And it's really going to help you identify the threats that specifically pertain to you. I can start really simple. Um, it can start as what am I what am I most concerned about? You can start from a risk perspective. So understanding what are your key systems, what are your key information assets, and then working backwards to understand what are the questions um, that you need to be able to answer about the threat landscape. That makes sense. So, so Alex, to, to kind of bring you into the, the conversation here, you know, you clearly spend a lot of time with SoftCats customers as part of your work in our advisory and assessment business. Um, what role do you think threat intelligence has to play f- to help customers plan and improve their security environment? I think my my view on it is that the threat intelligence allows us to see the why behind what we're doing. I think fundamentally, a lot of what we do in the cyberspace is quite defensive you know getting scores and weights and measure checks to say you know this thing is configured correctly or this thing is set up to be optimized or the most secure template i think the threat intelligence is telling us what attackers are actually doing and how what we're doing defensively relate back to what's going on in our industry in our country in our particular vector of of concern and i think Without the threat intelligence, we are just running around almost playing technical whack-a-mole, trying to hit different configuration things that we think could be exploited or utilized. But in reality, we're not backing that up with any form of data to say that happens not just to uh, us as an individual organization, but our industry, our geography, and even down to things like you know the, the particular businesses we do business with as well, which is crucially important when it comes to your cyber kind of supply chain i guess and kind of looking at how that relates back to an extension of your business as well so it sounds to me like it's you know what you're describing is potentially a an alternative way of kind of looking at the problem so it sounds like what you were describing with this whack-a-mole is actually a you know uh, we're going for a tick box exercise where we're kind of just going through best practice or all these things and, and really what we're talking about here is actually are we able to understand what the attackers are doing we're almost taking it back to the human beings eventually that sit behind a keyboard somewhere that are actually breaking into these systems is, is, is that fair to say yeah i definitely think it is i think when we look at what's going on i think there's a lot of cool and interesting stuff that gets marketed out there's some really complex attack techniques that we don't see by and large on scale i think it's more niche kind of threat actors that are utilizing that and in reality the kind of less interesting but the more important stuff sometimes falls by the wayside you know things like password management leaving ports open etc that actually if you understand your threat landscape really really well you know those are the the best things to look at from a preventative mindset rather than going straight to buying really complex and clever bits of technology that detect things that perhaps only the top one percent of attackers are able to actually use be from a skill set perspective and i think that's where by going back to those basics and going you know what is common in our industry common in our country and what's likely for us as as an organization whether that's related to your your particular vertical or because you do business with whoever or because your your brand name is whatever i think gives you the ability not just to to deploy things more effectively but also limit your your spending and your deployment to things that are actually going to be useful to you rather than just because an advert on linkedin looked really good or you're worried about this particular thing because it's you know you saw it in the news just jumping back just to make sure that we're uh, kind of explaining some of the, the terminology using you use the word threat actor what what do you mean by threat actor yeah so threat actor is an identity given to a particular individual or group of individuals that is uh, focused on uh, attacking certain uh, areas or organizations so generally the identity of a particular uh, hacker would be the, the kind of layman's term to put it into okay thank you alex so so oliver to, to kind of um build maybe on what alex said um 
how does kind of situational awareness and this kind of threat intelligence, how does it help, you know, business leaders? I guess if we think about, you know, there's obviously value that we've kind of talked about to IT and security stakeholders kind of helping you choose the right tools and those sort of things. How, how do you think it helps and adds value to the wider business context? Um, I think something a, a kind of broader, more strategic type of threat intelligence, like situational awareness, is going to be more, it, it's slightly more nebulous. It's going to be slightly more difficult to pin down. I think it's still going to be useful um, from a, a strategy perspective, I think, particularly for um, organizations that are kind of geographically diversified, spread around the world, um, organizations that are using intelligence to kind of proactively shape their security strategy. I think that's a really important use case. Another one I think Alex has touched on there is um, general kind of education and awareness for for staff. You see a lot of kind of sensationalized um, stories and media coverage about the kind of latest and greatest threat actors, um, as Alex was saying, or particular uh, case studies or techniques. And, and I think a lot of that gets misrepresented, but at the same time, having a kind of educated, trained and aware workforce um, is another really important kind of use case and application uh, for threat intelligence in that sense. Yeah. And one of the things you, uh, you, you sort of mentioned earlier as well was that, you know, that uh, helping to bring the why to the tools and the investments you're making, I guess, and as a business leader, you know, actually trying to be able to quantify, okay, well, why am I spending this money and being able to trace that back to a specific piece of intelligence or a specific threat actor that's targeting your organization or your sector or even your country kind of helps with that justification piece, I must imagine as well. hundred percent. I think the, the key thing that Alex touched upon there is about um, having a proportionate response to the threat. Now, anyone working cybersecurity, doesn't need me to tell them that, you know, resources are fundamentally limited. People have got to prioritize what they think is um, going to offer the most value to the business in terms of security initiatives, in terms of new controls, taking a threat-led approach and understanding, you know, which of those threat actors, which of those techniques, which of those assets in your business they're going to target um, is absolutely critical to how you're going to prioritize that security spending and effort. That makes sense. And um, one of the things, you know, it all sounds very uh, spooks-like, doesn't it? You know, we talk about threat intelligence and intelligence agencies. Oliver, can you give me a bit of an insight into, you know, how is intelligence generated and, and what is the process that an organization like Orpheus goes through to actually curate this set of information? Yeah, absolutely. So, um a lot of vendors will have different specialisms and different processes. So there are different areas of focus. For example, there are now threat intelligence vendors, really successful ones um, that focus and only specialize in the threat to say industrial control systems. So technology that's running power plants. Um, On the other hand, there are Uh, threat intelligence vendors that specialize in um, cyber criminals on the dark web or those going after payment systems. So the, uh, I guess the particular intelligence requirements and the kind of collection plan that derives from that will be different from vendor to vendor. Um, At Orpheus, we have a kind of, uh, I guess, an all-source fusion approach. We're looking to collect from a wide variety of sources uh, and use a combination of skilled analysts and sophisticated technology um, to kind of store, index, uh, fuse data from a lot of different um, sources and then make sense of it um, by using those analysts to ultimately provide the, the so what 
So I think there is there is a misconception in um, in some parts, and I think it's something we're moving away from a bit as an industry. Um, but I think there is still a perception that intelligence and and data are one and the same. So I wouldn't refer to, for example, a, a list of malicious IPs or kind of atomic indicators of compromise um, as intelligence. I think what we're quite focused on is providing the the so what to decision makers. So really focusing on actionable um, processed intelligence that's going to help our, our clients ultimately make a decision and help them better secure their organization. And Oliver, just before you move off that point, um, can you give us a definition of indicator of compromise? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so an ind- indicator of compromise is essentially a, uh, a domain or a, a file hash or a malware sample. Um, it's essentially something that um, someone that works in a, a SOC, so a security operations um, center, will use to search their own network to find if there is any evidence of a of a compromise by a threat actor. So if, for example, you can detect, you can find a certain malware hash uh, in the wake of a breach, um, there's a chance you can associate that with a particular uh, threat actor or campaign and understand who's targeted you and why they're likely to have targeted you. That makes sense. So, so Alex, uh, maybe a question for you. So I, I'm a customer. I've you know listened to this podcast. I've listened to Oliver describe threat intelligence and yourselves talk about the, the value of it. And I'm sitting here going, okay, actually, I think that might be useful for me. I think that might be something that, that would add value to my organization. What, what does the the organization need to do to prepare to be able to actually take this information in? Is there things they need to think about to actually get themselves in a position that they can make use of this type of uh, this type of data? Yeah, I think the, the first bit for me is that, you know, threat intelligence has the license to change on a whim. You know, if we take something like vulnerabilities that come out, these things can come out and, and quite quickly an exploit can be published. And very quickly, these can escalate to significant events. You know, the likes of Log4j and WannaCry is a really good example of that. So I think the first is looking that if we're going to create this data that's going to really inform a lot of what's going on in the kind of attack surface we're aware of. And what I mean by attack surface is the the external part of your organization you're putting out that's available to me as an attacker to be able to go and poke. We need to make sure we've got the resource to actually do something with that data. I think well, there's a bit of a, a license in, in IT and, and cyber in particular that we can create a ton of data, a ton of noise, and actually it can get sat in a queue somewhere for somebody to have a look at when they get a second. And in reality, we don't want to create tons of audit trails of things we were going to do that aren't helpful during an incident. So I think the first bit is understanding, okay, we've got the intelligence, what are we going to do with it? I think the second part is looking at actually how have we minimized what we are putting out in our attack surface to make it harder for the attacker, but also make the intelligence more valuable. I think if I've got tons and tons of unnecessary web servers out uh, broadcasting to the internet, um, it's really easy for attackers to go and make a ton of noise on that sort of stuff. And it's going to mean that my threat intelligence is broader and more complex and harder for me to get an understanding of what's really going on. So actually taking that, that view of actually how do I minimize it? And I think the last bit is, just taking a second to sit back and go, if I was the attacker and I knew nothing about your organization, how would I come after it? Because oftentimes we'll find ourselves enveloped in internal projects of things that are perhaps important, but don't have that external view on it. And just sitting down and going, how would I compromise our own organization can spin a completely different light on the four or five different projects you've currently got running. 
Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. So, you you know, but to summarize that back, it seems to me you're saying that you've got to have the capacity to actually do something with this. You've, you know, you've got to have the speed of response to actually act on it while it it's still actually actionable. And, and lastly, you need to reduce the noise down to the point that actually what you get isn't such a torrent of information that it, it becomes so nebulous that it, again, loses that actionability. It feels like that's a word that both um, you and, and Oliver have used, you know, that actionability, it seems like it's really important. Oliver, from your perspective, what, what makes intelligence actionable versus non-actionable is, is there something you'd look at it you'd look at an intelligence report and go that's good that's actionable yeah so so the kind of acid test we often apply is so what effectively so being able to look at an intelligence product or service or deliverable say you're looking at a, a kind of a4 summary of an incident if you're still asking the question so what after reviewing and, and interpreting that or kind of consuming it however you will, then I would say that there's probably an issue with that product or deliverable and it's not as actionable as it could be. I guess as intelligence analysts, we're always looking to inform or answer a series of questions um, for our consumer. And I think that so what piece is, is absolutely critical. That, yeah, that makes sense. And, and I guess back to that value to broader stakeholders other than IT, actually, we're answering the so what often very much for, for those individuals. Actually, you know, we're going with a budget request for an improvement. We don't often have the so what other than potentially it helps us achieve some sort of compliance regulation or or something that maybe our supply chain has asked us to do with it when we've signed a new contract. So, again, helps to provide context to that. Um, one thing um, I'm kind of really interested in is if somebody wanted to do this themselves, if they were again sitting here thinking, okay, well, how do I get started? You know, is, is this something organizations can can do themselves or is it something where they do have to come straight out to a specialist? It, it, can you get started in a small way? How would you think about that problem, Oliver? I think absolutely you can get started in a, in a small way. And this goes back to something that Alex touched upon earlier, that it's not necessarily about, you know, to, to do threat intelligence or to take an intelligence-led approach at your organization. You don't necessarily need to go out and, and spend hundreds of thousands of pounds on a platform or a tool. It can start as simple as trying to identify those exam questions I mentioned. So taking a structured look at what are the key threats to my organization? And then how can you feed those through into controls and improving your security posture? There obviously is. As a consultancy, we specialize in helping our clients answer those questions. There are obviously um, a lot of kind of structured uh, tools and approaches. You know, there's kind of 70 years of, of doctrine on the practice of good and proper intelligence, um, which is equally applicable to, to cyber threat intelligence specifically. Um, so there's a massive amount of, of guidance and information out there, but you absolutely can start small to break down that core question of what are the what are the threats to my organization? Uh, which of those do I know about and what do I need to go out and, and find some more about, basically? What do you think the greatest threat is for UK businesses today? I think, in my honest opinion, it's having assets on networks that you don't know about. I think lack of visibility for me is, is the one I pull out. I think we're really good at securing the things we can see and we know about. I think that the challenge is that, that one asset out of 100 that you know we don't see that we haven't pushed out a profile to or that isn't configured properly is the foothold for me because I, as an attacker, can get on that and do what I want relatively undetected unless you've got some clever tools out there. 
And Oliver, probably the same question to you, but with probably a lens more of a, a, a threat intelligence lens. What, what would you say the, the kind of leading threat, threat actor groups that are out there today that most UK businesses generally should be concerned about? I would say ransomware as a kind of ecosystem rather than picking on one specific group at the moment. I think it's kind of no surprise. Um, the model is constantly evolving. I think it's really interesting combination of financially motivated crime. There's a whole geopolitical situation behind it that's fermenting more of this activity. Um, the disruption itself is incredibly um, impactful to businesses, both in terms of, you know, loss of confidentiality, downtime to businesses. Um, there is the fact that, um, you know, increasingly we've seen over the last couple of years, you are effectively um, susceptible to ransomware incidents affecting your third parties because so many other organizations um, are holding data on your behalf. There's the whole theater behind it again. Every kind of day and week, we see a new kind of innovative group using particularly kind of eye-catching techniques or tactics um, designed to kind of arouse public interest. Um, Yeah, so it's one that's developed massively over the, particularly over the last three or four years um, and and looks set to, to kind of keep evolving as well. Um, just to build on that, something you, you mentioned there, I think is really interesting. It will be for our listeners. You know, the 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 geopolitics actually is a a key part of you know what drives um, cybersecurity techniques and adversary groups and and I guess almost trends within uh, within the industry. And does that mean that actually? organizations have to can think more about geopolitics you know actually all of a sudden you have to think of the impact of conflict between different organizations or potentially fallouts between different countries and how that may change the threat landscape or the threat level a certain organization is exposed to based upon maybe the geography they're located in yeah i think i think absolutely i would say you know to to maybe caveat it first the point that Alex mentioned earlier is important regarding I don't want to, people listening this to, to turn around and, you know, spend a, start spending a disproportionate focus on looking at exotic nation state threat actors when in reality it's going to be a lot of the, um, you know, it's going to be a lot more the kind of mundane cyber criminal activity that's probably more likely to, to impact their business. Um, that said, I think it all comes from understanding your threat model in the in the first instance. So taking a look at your organization, as Alex said, where you operate, um, the the sector you operate in, who your people are, what technology you use, what your attack surface looks like. Depending on that, it may be that um, nation state threat actors are particularly relevant to you. So if you are operating, for example, in a strategically um, significant um, kind of industry that is maybe a target for kind of intellectual property theft. It may be that the sector you operate in kind of competes against or even works with um, state-owned enterprises in some states that are kind of renowned for having really active cyber espionage programs. Um, It may be that your business is somehow politically aligned with opponents of um, some of those kind of the usual suspects effectively in terms of nation state actors. And I think the final point is that increasingly some of that threat from nation state actors is effectively indiscriminate. 
So we've seen again, or sorry, it's untargeted, maybe is a better way of characterizing it. We've seen as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, how much um, kind of collateral damage there has been, for want of a better term, um, in terms of disruption, disconnection to networks and third parties that would appear would normally appear kind of unrelated to the particular conflict suffering disruption as a result. So it's something definitely to factor in increasingly, but not necessarily something for everyone to focus on and prioritise. Alex, do you have a view on um, people using cybersecurity attacks as a form of protest, say in support or, or of a certain cause? You know, I'm, I'm thinking in particular about um, people who are either in Ukraine or in support of Ukraine, um, DDoSing or taking down services within within Russia and other Russian-speaking uh, countries. Do you have a, do you have a view on how that's evolved? Yeah, I think it's something that. Uh, you know, the kind of emotions that get embroiled in this sort of thing, you know, people are very passionate about it. And we're starting to see, you know, generations come up with a, a very good level of skills that, uh, you know, are, are starting to use those for those common causes. And I think that the marketing term is, is hacktivism that's, that's kind of out there that, you know, is uh, it started with something as simple as the subscribe to PewDiePie printer hack that was out there years ago was, you know, he was trying to generate a ton of subscribers. So found a load of open printers uh, on the internet and just went and sent them all a command to print out uh, and subscribe to PewDiePie piece of paper and really, really simple origin of attacking kind of, you know, it is a, what would be called a gray hat in the sense that, you know, it's not really bad, but not really good either kind of sits in the middle of those things. And then, you know, when we start to see this escalate into, you know, uh, the Russia, Ukraine situation, or just any sense of kind of, you know, uh, sense of kind of patriarchy, I guess, um, we start to see that this really starts to become something that, you know, has a lot of potential to do some damage when you look at some of the stuff that, you know, if we're not securing these critical national infrastructure and, and these subsequent countries that, you know, in Russia or Ukraine or wherever aren't securing them, this becomes a vehicle for people who don't have quite a lot of regulation around them because they're individuals with quite passionate and, and strong resolves. You know, this isn't a, oh, if I don't do this attack very well, I won't make a lot of money. It's kind of not a financial gain. It's, it's more to them than that. They're kind of their resolve is going to be a lot stronger than someone else's. And I think that is always a dangerous combination. And then when you add in the availability of mature cyber attacking tools that are out there for simply pay by credit card or even free in some cases, um, we start to build this ecosystem of, you know, I feel really passionately against blanks, so therefore I'm going to, you know, do a denial of service attack or a another or even, you know, things like ransomware as a service come in. I can just pay for somebody else who knows what they're doing to go and attack this organizational thing or, or, or other thing that I'm really against. Yeah, it's very interesting. I think almost when we go back to some of the things we talked about um I think episode one of this season, we'll talk about the metaverse and this kind of movement to us all living a digital experience in some capacity, some way or another, actually, actually protest and, and those things will also evolve into a digital capacity and, and actually seeing things like rather than people slowing down on the M25 to protest fuel and, and kind of stopping everyone's ability to use the motorway, actually, we'll see the digital version of that, which will be someone will take down your favorite digital service because they're upset with something in that space. Yeah, I mean, that. speaking of fuel, there have been, over the past few months, a series of attacks in Iran, actually, on petrol stations. So basically on the subsidized fuel system that has left, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people or thousands, certainly, kind of unable to access petrol. I guess the other really interesting element for me on what Alex was saying about kind of the rise of, of activism is 
because of effectively the attribution problem in in cybersecurity and around the cyber threat landscape, which is effectively how difficult it is to know who is ultimately responsible uh, for an individual cyber attack or operation. States and state actors have taken advantage of that ambiguity and, uh, you know, particularly Russia, but certainly Iran, North Korea, um, other states too, um, have effectively launched or conduct deniable activity under the guise of cyber activists, kind of posing as independent actors um, behind the kind of classic anonymous guy Fawkes mask, but uh, conducting really kind of sophisticated and, and in some cases really disruptive incidents. That makes sense. Alex, how do you think that lack of attribution changes uh, a way an organization needs to think about their cybersecurity? I think the lack of attribution for me, it becomes about the importance of kind of almost your brand, I guess, in that element. I think the one that I could kind of pull out that would immediately get some affinity with our listeners is probably something like Twitter. If I can hack somebody else's Twitter and make some statements that are completely against something that they've campaigned years and years against you know twitter is a particular platform that consumes that sort of stuff incredibly quickly you know if hacking someone like donald trump is a great example when he was president you know to be able to make certain statements and it becomes almost there the attribution is less relevant to the what was said at the time you know the embarrassment of saying hey you know this thing you campaigned against i made a statement for by hacking your twitter because your password was whatever you didn't enable multi-factor authentication the attribution it's not so much that it's obscured is that it's probably not that interesting to some people yeah you know you might get a pat on the back from the activist community you're already a part of but in reality you've kind of done your job at that point i think as organizations it does come back to how important is our brand what kind of statements are we making and you know does that directly oppose a particular group that feel passionately against that and for me it's around you know what would be the impact if somebody did manage to make the converse statement of what we've been saying through our platforms yeah, that makes sense. Well, um, I just want to thank you both, Oliver and Alex, for joining us on this episode. It'd be really interesting to hear about threat intelligence and what it means. Alex, if I can just ask you to give us a, a quick summary of today's episode, would you mind doing that? Yeah, absolutely. I think in, in summary, we've talked about understanding, looking at our organization from an attacker's perspective and understanding how that sort of approach can garnish us with a load of actionable intelligence we can use to look at how we can uh, secure our organizations without going and running into rabbit holes, but actually doing the stuff that's going to make the biggest impact and prove the most value to those in our organization who want to see uh, the biggest increase in change. Thank you for that summary, Alex Lewis. And thank you to you, Oliver Fairbank. And thank you to you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you have any comments, thoughts or ideas from this episode or any of our previous episodes, you can contact us on WhatsApp on 07 and we'll see you next time on Explain It.